over a span of 2,000 years, 40 authors on three different continents and in three different languages penned 66 books, all of which were supernaturally inspired and intricately designed as God's revelation to man. The spoken word of God, living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, recorded and bound just for us. Join us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books, the big book, cover to cover. This is Michael Easley in Context. Reading 2 Kings is, uh, it's like watching a train wreck. You know, watching a train wreck is you, you don't want to watch it, but you can't turn away. It's a horrible thing, but you just can't turn away because of what's happening as these things demolish into one another. And that truly is the story of the kings. It is an unbroken account. It began in 1 Kings. It's one ongoing narrative. And you wonder, how can things get worse? Well, if you read through the book, you see very quickly. They wanted to look. God warned them, you don't want to be like other nations. Not only are they going to look like other nations, they're going to live in other nations. They're going to go into exile into another nation because of their sinfulness. Mostly standing alone is Elisha. Elisha is going to be the one who takes up Elijah's mantle, um, and he will be uh, God's spokesman to the kings. So you've got these prophet roles who come along, Elijah, Elisha, and we'll meet Isaiah later in the story. And they're going to call people to repent, to be merciful, to follow God's word, to obey God. And it's a big mixture of results. A fascinating study for you uh, Bible study nerds. Do a comparison and contrast of the life of Elisha and Elijah. It'll it'll, it'll rock your world. So many parallels, so many similarities. Uh, Elijah is this mighty prophet that does big miracles and There's great debate about how you number these, but let's just say he does eight miracles over against Elisha's 16 miracles. And you might remember that Elisha asked Elijah for a double portion of his spirit. Remember that? And Elijah says, that's a basically paraphrase. That's a big thing you're asking. You don't know what you're asking. And so the mantle is a metaphor. The prophets wore a mantle. It was made out of hair. Uh, We don't know exactly what it looked like, but there were wide belts made of hair that differentiated a prophet like John the Baptist who lived in the wilderness, if you will. We've got 40 kings. We've talked about this in our study of 1 and 2 Samuel and now 1 and 2 Kings. Uh, In the 2 Kings record, 19 of them are going to reign from Israel. Israel's in the north. Judah is in the south. Israel's going to be the most corrupt kingdom. Judah is going to be almost as corrupt, but not quite as bad with hope there. Um, it's 286 years in 2 Kings. That's the time frame. That's about as long as America hadn't quite got there yet, but think of the time frame you're covering. Um, A way to look at this divided kingdom is the first 17 chapters are Judah's story where the fall of Israel is going to occur and go into exile into Assyria. Then the book takes a dramatic change in chapter 18, and it's the record of the fall of Judah exiled into Babylon. These are God's people. It's supposed to be God's kingdom. You're supposed to listen to the prophet, listen to the word of the Lord. If you do these things, he'll bless you and protect you. It's an if-then proposition. They can't do it. And the infighting and the warring and all the intrigue that goes along with it. So they're going to lose everything and go into exile. I can't imagine if we were ever taken over by a foreign power and they drug us away to another country. 
That's what happened to Israel. They drug them away to another country, but they were captive in another land and essentially in slavery. Uh, first and second Kings, don't, don't forget one of the unique parts about the Bible when people vilify the Bible or say it isn't true. No text on the planet that records the kind of failures that the Bible records of God's own people. And you've got this incredibly detailed story about all these men and women who are, uh, get into polytheism, into idolatry, syncretism, even child sacrifice. Second Kings begins with Ahab's son. Remember Ahab and his lovely wife Jezebel? So this is his son, and we're going to read about uh, Ahaziah. He's going to fall through a lattice, and uh, he doesn't know if he's going to live or die. And so let's pick up the story in chapter 1, verse 3. And what we're going to see in this story, Ahaziah does not ask God for help. Verse 3, but the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to the messengers of the king of Samaria, and say to them, Is it because there's no God in Israel that you're going to inquire of Baal Zebub, the god of Ekron? Now, did you, any of you read the book Lord of the Rings when you were in high school or college? That comes from this phrase, Baal Zebub. This, this Ekron god was the lord of the flies. And so, what, what Elijah's saying is, Are you kidding me? You're going to go ask a Baal god for an answer to your query as opposed to Yahweh Elohim? You've got the prophet right here. Why would you go up and talk to this God, the God of Israel, the God of Ekron? And so what you see right away is Ahab is following in the footsteps of his father and mother. Because Jezebel is all into all this Molech worship and so forth. Uh, so it catches the reader, and it should right away, as, as you and I read the story, is there no God in Israel? Two more times in the chapter, verse 6 and verse 16, is there no God in Israel that you have to go up and inquire the Lord of the flies? So just a quick lesson at the beginning, is there no God in your situation? Is there no God in your joblessness, in your marriage, in your infertility, in your struggle with your children, in your loneliness, in your economy, in your fill-in-the-blank. And where do we go and turn when we have a problem? You likely don't go to the Lord of the Flies, but we probably go horizontal. We go to our own resources. We go to our friends. We go to our network. We go to our worldview. And I think it's a good reminder for me, for you, uh, that we begin, we inquire of the Lord. In contrast, we're then reintroduced. So Ahab's going to inquire of this Ekron God. And in contrast, we're introduced to this phrase, the man of God. It occurs 36 times in the book of 2 Kings. This little phrase, O man of God, man of God. Yes, there's a man of God. There's a man of God near in Israel. So in chapter 1, we have this fire exchange between Elijah and Azariah's men. And remember that there's two groups of 50 that go to see Elijah. And fire comes down and consumes them. It's, it's another cool story to tell your boys when they don't like the Bible stories. These are great stories to read your boys because it's, it's cool. He's sitting up there and fire comes down and destroys 50 men. And the next 50 go and they're, they're nuked, if you will. The third 50 goes, how would you like to be the commander? Take 50 more. Uh, what's wrong with this equation? How did I get the short straw? Why do I have to go get, see all my men burned up? And this third man who leads the 50 basically falls on his face prostrate before Elijah, and he does not uh, bring down the fire of God. What we're meant to see at this point in the story, and we need to go back to 1 Kings 18 for just a moment, 
when Elijah is confronting the prophets of Baal and the Ashtaroth, and we've got the altar. Remember the pact they said, okay, let's see who's God. We'll, we'll take two oxen, you'll, you'll sacrifice one to Baal and one to Yahweh Elohim, and uh, we'll see who, which God burns up the sacrifice. And remember, they dance and cut themselves and all night long, they're wailing and howling and nothing happens. And then Elijah says, now come, come and watch. Now let, let, me, let me make it dramatic. Let's pour some water on it. Pour some more water on it. Pour some more water on it. And then the prayer of Elijah is essentially, let these people know there's a God in heaven. And the fire consumes the offering, the stones, the altar, the dust, and all the water are licked up, a la Steven Spielberg. It's gone. So this is the same Elijah who can call down fire from God, and he's doing a good job of it. Now, why that's important is when it's going to transfer to Elijah. Anyway, so the third dispatch of men are spared, and the angel of the Lord instructs Elijah in the company of Azariah. Remember, the angel of the Lord is a phrase that almost always means Jesus. Jesus occurs in the Old Testament many times, and it's called a, anybody remember? Christophany or a theophany. Both those words are used interchangeably. So Jesus shows up in the Old Testament, not always, but most of the time when you read the angel of the Lord, sometimes your Bible might say an angel of the Lord. won't get too far in the weeds on that, but generally speaking, when it says the angel of the Lord, it's Jesus showing up. So Christ shows up, and he's going to instruct Elijah uh, how to deal with this last company of people. And I won't take, take you down the whole detailed road of it, but we're going to see Elijah's death, but not really. The chariots are going to come in a whirlwind, and Israel and its horsemen are going to take him away, and Elijah, Elijah is going to go into the heavens, and Elijah is going to witness this, and that's when the mantle, of course, is going to be used. In chapter 3, we've got the divided kingdom. We have Jehoram in Israel, and we have Jehoshaphat in Judah. And we start picking up this phrase, he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. And the most chilling phrase in the book to me is they continue in the sins of Jeroboam, the sons of Nebat, which he made Israel sin. All the way back to 1 Kings, all the way back to the beginning of Jeroboam's reign. Elisha steps into the prominent role in verse 7 of chapter 3, and we start to see that phrase, the man of God, attached to Elisha. Uh, think about just a few things to keep in mind of Elisha's life story, because he, he, he's not as, as big a prophet in the sense of Elijah's miracles, but there are more of them, and if we look at them, they're nonetheless impressive. The widow and the miracle of oil. She's starving, and he's get, get all the vessels you can get. Is that all you come up with? Okay, and then they're all full of oil. You have the Shunammite woman, and she's the one where some of you grew up in traditions where uh, somebody had a prophet's room in their house. This comes from the Shunammite woman. And she saw Elisha going back and forth traveling. Hey, to her husband, let's build a room for him. He can stay here. It's a win-win. He gets a place to stay, and we get a man of God in our pocket. And fast forward, she has a baby, and that baby gets sick, and Elijah just like Elijah with the, uh, with the widow of Zarephath. Now here we have Elisha raising uh, the, widow, uh, the, the Shunammite woman's son when he dies. Uh, thirdly, we have the poisonous stew, which is kind of a comical story. They're making stew and people are getting sick and Elisha throws some grain in it and all the all's well. We have Naaman, which is a great story, the captain of the Arab, uh, Arab army, and he's a leper. 
and he's healed. And that's quite a comical story, actually, because he wants him to go dip in the Jordan seven times, and he gets all mad. And, and it's a daughter, I believe. It says, look, if he asked you to do something great, would you have done it? Go get wet seven times. Try it. And he comes up, and his flesh is clean, and Naaman wants to give him a gift. And he goes, no, no, you don't pay for a miracle. This is of God. And you remember the sidebar story, the guy named uh, Gehazi, Gehazi follows after him and says, hey, uh, could you spare some change? My master changed his mind. Give me a few shekels. And he does. Well, Elijah finds out about it, and the leprosy that was on Nahum goes to Gehazi's family forever. That's called talionic justice, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Don't mess with this stuff. You don't go and violate the prophet's law. You don't go the word. You don't say what God didn't say. And that would be a stark reminder to all who knew Gehazi. Uh, the borrowed axe head, uh, he's chopping at something. The axe flies in the water, and he goes, oh, it's freaking out. I've lost the axe head. Seems silly to you and me. Uh, that was a tool of life. That was uh, in, in that economy, to have tools was how you lived. So Isaiah, uh, um, he, um, Elisha makes it float. And he picks it up. And then we have the king of the Arameans who are foiled in their attempt to capture Elisha. And perhaps the, one of the more well-known verses on Elisha account is in chapter 6, verse 16. Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And that's one of those verses that it's a misapplied verse that God greatly blesses. We take it out of context all the time. And we're, the odds are innumerable. More, even though they're bigger odds. No, yeah, anyway, you get the point. Um, in chapter 6, we're introduced to Ben-Hadad, and he goes up against Samaria, and we've also got a famine. And this is one of the most horrific stories in the record of 2 Kings. Two mothers make a pact. They're dying. And so let's eat your son, and then later we'll eat my son. And so the first mom agrees, and they eat her son. And then, the, of course, the other mom is not going to come through. And you look at this parallel back to Solomon. You, all these things that keep coming around and coming around and coming around. But this is where you see the degradation from Solomon down to Jehoram. Because Jehoram gets upset about it. He tears his clothes and he goes after Elisha. But he's really not upset about the famine. He's really not that upset about what happened. He's mad at Elisha. And in chapter 631, he, he said, May God do to me, and more also, if the head of Elijah, the son of Shaphat, remains on him today. This is not how a king acts. A king says, wait a minute, we don't have child sacrifice here. We don't eat our young. Destroy those people that did that. Now let's pray and repent that God will lift the famine. But no, he gets mad at the consequence of it at Elijah. If you're a counselor, and one of the, the jokes counselors have are, we're a bridge that gets walked on between two people. A counselor just gets abused in the process of being a counselor. He or she is trying to, well, you get mad at the counselor. I've seen it in healthcare. People get mad at the doctors. They get mad at the nurses. They're just trying to help you. Things don't always work out. Well, you don't get mad at Elisha because of the sin of Israel. Well, Elisha's word is the word of the Lord, and it's an interesting story where he says, basically, tomorrow the famine will be gone. Well, how do you turn crops on overnight? How do you change a famine from not having food to having abundance of food? And then you have this entertaining story of the four lepers. The four lepers uh, can't go into town, they can't go into the village because they're leprous and they're maligned, they're pariahs out of the community. They're dying too. 
And it's almost like it would make a great uh, a Disney-esque animation, these four lepers talking about, look, we're going to die anyway. We may as well go in and see if we can find some food in Samaria. I mean, if they kill us, we're still going to die. And so they go, okay, let's do it. So they go into the city. In the meantime, uh, the Arameans have, have, been, have been confused by God. They've left the camp. They've left their food, left gold. They just ran away. And the four lepers go into Samaria, and they're, they're eating and drinking and having the time of their life. And one, then one of them feels bad. He goes, wait a minute. We can't keep this to ourselves. And God's great irony, the lepers go and inform them the famine's over. Come and take the plunder with us. So in one day, the famine was over, not the way they thought it was going to be, but the way God intended it to be. Uh, in 2 Kings chapter 7, we see this phrase again, the word of the Lord is being fulfilled by the man of God. And again and again, this cadence, even though the kingdoms are falling apart, we have the word of the Lord being true and the man of God being true to speak the word of the Lord. The fighting continues between the two kingdoms. Jezebel is slain. I heard uh, from more than one of you, you didn't like my comment about naming your cat Jezebel. Don't ever name anything else Jezebel, but you can name cats Jezebel. And there is actually a biblical theological reason for this. True. Hang with me. In 2 Kings chapter 9, just as the prophecy had been about what was going to happen to Jezebel, what was going to happen to her? The dogs are going to eat her. Not cats. Dogs. And, of course, I mean, I'm, I suspect she was kind of chewy. But anyway, um, the dogs eat the flesh of Jezebel. What's fascinating is we get that refrain again, the sins of Jeremiah, Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin. The spiral of depraved indifference continues down the line, and there's a woman named Athaliah who comes along. Athaliah is the daughter of Jezebel and Ahab. She's just like her mother. Frankly, she's a lot worse. First thing she does is murder all her grandchildren. What person could murder a child, much less your grandchildren? In the middle of this, uh, one of the relatives takes one boy away. who happens to be named Joash. He's, he's under a year, and she takes him away and hides him in the temple complex. He's going to become six, seven years old and be made king. Athaliah is more egregious of a Baal worshiper than her mother and father Jezebel and Ahab were. Athaliah makes herself queen Athaliah is not in the lineage of David. She has no business doing what she's doing. She's her mother's daughter. And I would say without too much pause, perhaps the most wicked woman in the Bible, second to Jezebel. So don't use the name Athaliah or Jezebel. So anyway, her sister takes the, the one grandson away. Um, there's a group of three different contingencies. There's loyalists to the house of David, if you will. And they say, look, this is the proper king. Let's make him king. Even though he's a boy at seven, let's make him king. They make him king. Athaliah hears about it from the balcony. He yells, treason, treason. You can't make him king. I'm the queen, essentially. And um, she knows her, she's in trouble. She's the one who's committed treason. She's the one who's committed murder. And they're going to put her to death. Jo Joash will reign 40 years. And then generally, he will do what is right in the sight of the Lord. And you have those who did evil in the sight of the Lord, those who did right. In the book of 2 Kings, uh, 24 times, again, we're going to see the sins of Jeroboam. 13 times he made Israel sin. But Joash is one who does right except for the so-called high places. Uh, think of the high places as the perennial weeds of worship. 
Israel could never quite get them out of her system. And there's only a couple of kings that address them, but Josiah doesn't. But he does everything else right. He also does this cool thing with a, a box. Remember the offering box he built? He, he had, they had an offering box because the temple was in disrepair. He said, we need to repair the temple of Yahweh. And so we're going to take a collection. What about the collections they bring when they bring their offerings? And basically the priests have been using that money for other things. And so Joash says, we're going to put a chest and put a hole in it. It's going to be up where I have eyes on it. And so he monitors the collection of the money, and they then have enough resources to repair the temple complex. Elisha's going to die in chapter 13. It'll be different than Elijah. He won't be wheeled off to heaven in the whirlwind and the chariot and the fire. Uh, he'll be buried, and there's a little comical end of his life after he's buried. Uh, the Moabites are going through there, and they, they're burying their dead, and they throw a guy in the grave, and he touches, uh, he touches Elisha's bones and pops back out alive. Kind of cool. Um, so you know, these, these guys have a, a life long beyond what we understand, the way God uses them, literally and metaphorically. In chapter 13, verse 23, the Lord was gracious to them, had compassion on them, and turned to them because of the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and would not destroy them or cast them from his presence until now. I read oodles and oodles of commentators, and nobody points this out, and I'm not saying it's my discovery. I just think we missed these verses. This is the Abrahamic covenant folded in this storyline of the dilapidated nature of Israel and Judah and the kingdoms and doing evil and the sins of Jeroboam and all this craziness, people killing children and eating them, you got this one thing. God is still gracious and merciful even while this is going on. Not because we're good people, because he made a covenant with Abraham. And it continues back to then all the way to the new covenant with Jesus Christ. Well, um, Azariah, we have, go back and forth with these kings. I won't read them all. You can read them. But they, they do evil, 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 and we have a few outliers that do good. By chapter 17, uh, verse 23, Israel continued to walk in the sins of Jeroboam. The Lord removed them from his sight and took them into Assyrian exile. So chapter 18 is a major break in the storyline. Now we've dealt with Israel. Now we're going to go to Judah in chapters 18 through 25 of the book of 2 Kings. Um, in, chapter 2 King, in chapter 18, we have a bright spot. Again, he did right in the sight of the Lord. He removed the high places and broke down the pillars and cut up the Asherah, even the bronze serpent Moses had made. This is Hezekiah's reign. Hezekiah, um, Asa, Jehoshaphat, and Josiah are the four kings that do right in the main. They don't always end perfectly, but they do right in comparison to the rest of them in the northern country. Um, you remember the bronze serpent? That's an interesting story, a little bit of a sidebar. They're being, they're being bitten by serpents, and Moses is instructed by God to make a bronze serpent. And if the people look at it with faith, then they'll be healed. Well, every, every physical thing God gives man, he worships later on, which is a, a philosophical, not a theological argument of why we don't have... Uh, a piece of the cross of Calvary, why we don't have a nail from Christ's feet, why we don't have a piece of Noah's ark. If the astronaut ever got a piece of gopher wood off Ararat and said that's the, that's the ark, you know what we'd have? We'd have the first church of Noah's ark, I guarantee you. And that piece of wood would be in a glass thing behind uh, some protective deal with lights on it. People would go worship the piece of wood. We don't have an artifact. We have a risen Savior. We have a little sip of 
juice and a little solid piece of bread to remind us of the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, we worship the object, which is why Christianity doesn't need idols. Um, a lesson he, well, let me continue here. Second uh, Kings chapter 18, verse 5, speaking of Hezekiah. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that after him there was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor among those who were before him. He clung to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but he kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him whenever he went, wherever he went, he prospered, and he rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. Again, Hezekiah's life is remarkable. And we've had Elijah who spoke to the kings, Elisha who spoke to the kings, he's dead. Now we get a new prophet, Isaiah, is going to be the one who's going to speak to Hezekiah. And reading through these and studying the prophets a little bit, and you kind of jump around reading the book of Isaiah, um, it struck me, if you were a king and you had a prophet in your pocket, why in the world wouldn't you have your cabinet meeting every morning and bring your war counselor, your secretary, all your, in this case, all his men together and have Isaiah come in or Elijah, whoever it was, and say, open God's law and remind us. That, you're the king for goodness sakes. And he told the king to write a cop, his own copy of the law to keep it in front of him. I mean, this seems like a no-brainer, right? Well, that's just for free. That's where my mind wanders when I read this stuff. Um, we have a very detailed prayer about Hezekiah is going to die. He doesn't want to die. He's a little bit of a child at this point. He turns to the wall and cries like a baby. And uh, he intercedes, you know, Isaiah intercedes for him and God gives him 15 more years, which is a two-edged sword. It doesn't work out like it should have, perhaps. Um, and we won't go down those roads. Let me give you a few lessons as we try to put some shoe leather to this book of Second Kings. Number one, does our sin make others sin? I'm struck by Jeroboam's cadence. He made Israel sin. It, it nauseates me that this one guy had that much influence over people. So I'm, I'm faced to ask the question, I'll ask you, does your sin, does my sin make other people sin? Um, I have this phrase called imperceptible influence, that when you're a mom, a dad, a leader, an employer, employee, you have an imperceptible influence. We can't, you think you're doing A, and in fact, it's your lifestyle over here people are observing, the way he treats his wife, the way she treats her husband, the way they uh, you know, raise their kids. It's imperceptible. You don't know how people are seeing you. And invariably over the years, someone's probably come to you and said, you know, I saw this, and, da, 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 and you really impressed me because and it was nothing you ever intended. I call it imperceptible influence. Uh, I saw a person walk outside and pick up trash in the, in the parking lot. They didn't have to do that. You don't know the influence you have by just being who you are. Well, there's a downside to this too. Because if we're flippant, if we're arrogant, if we're cavalier, if we snip at our husband or wife, if we snip at you know, our kids or grandkids, people go, oh, oh, you know. So you have imperceptible influence both ways. So I just suggest as you and I think about that, examine your imperceptible. How, how do people really see you? And do you have the courage to say, you know, I'm not aware that my personality leaves a wake behind. I'm not aware that, and I'm not talking about the stronger, weaker brother of the New Testament. I'm talking about just the way we live. Do we 
tacitly or implicitly endorse people to choose something that's wrong because they've seen you or me do it. Um, Secondly, what or whom do you fear? I am astonished how many people live with anxiety in their stomach. Uh, They wake up with a knot. They're anxious all the time. They're afraid of the what-ifs. And if there aren't enough what-ifs, we'll make some what-ifs up along the way. Uh, we worry about our children, our marriage, we're about grandchildren, we're about health, we're about money. Uh, there's probably not a person in this room who hasn't worried or been anxious about your financial future. It's the world we live in. Um, the repeated cadence of this is if you don't fear Yahweh, you're going to be in trouble. When they go into exile, there's this story earlier in 2 Kings. It's a, it's a horrible story. They go into exile, and um, they don't fear God. And God told them, you're going to go into exile to fear me. So God, in his strange humor and theology, sends lions to kill some of them. What's God teaching? You're not afraid of me? Okay. How about a lion coming in your camp? That scared the bejeebers out of you. And it happens more than once. Because I'm trying to teach you what are you afraid of and why. I spent some time in Nigeria. I've shared many stories from that month over there. And Nigerians are terrified of snakes. I mean, beyond, uh, beyond terror. Because so many of their family dies from snake bites. And if you live in the bush, in the wilderness, there's no antivenom. There's no doctor to go to. You get bit, you're going to die. And they're terrified of snakes. Um, one of my uh, sons-in-law does not like snakes. Don't even talk about snakes. Makes him terrified. What are you afraid of? And why? The theology I think we're supposed to learn here is we're afraid of the wrong things. We need to fear God. And as I've suggested, uh, the fear just doesn't mean the king's English about worship and worthy. You've heard me perhaps use the phrase, I think we need a holy fear, F-E-A-R, about God. He's not your chum. He's not your buddy. Yes, he calls you his friend. Doesn't mean you and I are his friends. It's one way for the most part. He's sovereign. He's eternal. He's impeccable. He's righteous. He's not our buddy. He's not our pal. And we need to, in in your time in the morning, if you're using the handbook to prayer or reading the scripture, you and I need a holy fear. I am about to talk to the God of the universe, for goodness sakes. I'm a speck made in his image with the capacity and ability to worship him. But I think we have lost this. To say it another way, is God your first concern? He's not always my first concern. My first concern in the morning is a hot shower for my back and neck and coffee. And then the Bible comes third. Sorry, Lord. I got to get those things figured out before I can sit down with a book for a while. Um. Is he your first concern when you make plans? Is he your first concern when you go out on a day? How do I represent the Lord? How do I honor God today? How do I keep courage today for the Lord? Could he be more your first concern? And I'm not a guilt and shame guy. I hope you know that. But I do want to goad your thinking to say how, when you wake up in the morning and throughout the day, is your first concern God, Christ, not just self? Thirdly, uh, most kings were evil in the sight of the Lord. And again, it's hard to 
missed a lesson. Very few can handle power. When I was in graduate school, one of my professors often talked about big successful pastors and how often they got into trouble. And his theory was the reason God didn't grant more people in ministry more success is because they couldn't handle it. I thought that was a pretty good observation. Because when you get that much power and that much money and that many people adoring you, then you start RHIB, rank has its privileges. You start doing things that you wouldn't have done otherwise. The nature of leadership is we can no longer do things we used to do because we're leaders. And that's counterculture to everything in the West. Um, four, God's word is always near. God's word is always near. Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah. If you have a phone in your pocket, you've probably got the Bible on it. If not, if you're old school and you still use a real Bible and you've got probably, I mean, it would be embarrassing for us to go home and dig through all of our little nooks and crannies and see how many Bibles we actually have in the Easley household. And probably true for you as well. But is it near? It could be on your desktop or in your kitchen cabinet where you do your devotions or at work or whatever, but are you near to him? I, I, I've, you've heard me wax about this. I think neuroscience is going to demonstrate you can't learn simply on a phone. It's great. It's a wonderful tool. It's the computer in your pocket. Believe me, I love technology to a point. But there's something about the lack of distraction between a text and a pen and a pad that keeps me focused. And as soon as I turn on the technology, I'm email and text messaging and the day's over. This sucks the life out of you. Um, he's near to you. Are you near to him? That's the question. And last, God delights when we cling to him and his word. God delights. Second Kings 18.6, Hezekiah clung to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments. Do you cling to the Lord? And we could probably tie that into the early lesson about, is he my first concern? You will never go astray clinging to the Lord. You will never waste time in his word. You will never waste time in prayer. You will never waste time putting him as your first concern. You can get more done in a 10-hour workday if you spend some block of time with your Savior than working an 11-hour workday. That's a, that's a choice of faith. Do you believe time with him is indispensable? It's not because you have to. It's because you can. It's not because you should. It's because you're free to. And until we get the mindset, I don't have to do devotion, I get to. I don't have to pray, I get to. I don't have to be around other believers, I choose to. Clinging to him is never a waste. Cling to his word, cling to him, and it, he delights in that. And we see the blessings that follow throughout the book. Michael Easley in Context is fully funded from donations by our listeners. If you're a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation on our website? You can find us on michaelincontext.com. In Context is engineered by Chad Cates, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho, Chad Cates, and Blair Masters.